Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we're progressing in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. We're progressing chapter by chapter each Sunday in this class, whether you're joining live, listening to this on the replay or the podcast, we're going chapter by chapter. And this week we're in chapter 18, coming to a close of our program in about another six to eight weeks. And at that point, we're going to restart the entire program all over again. So I'd like to welcome all of you guys to today's talk and discussion where we're going to be discussing God's creative action. You have free will. This is chapter 18 in this book. As we go in today's class, you're welcome to ask questions just like all of our other classes where you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderators will see that. Or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. This chapter about God, it's really important for us to understand because in order to get to enlightenment, it's really wise to have a really good understanding of all the different realms, to understand the beings in those different realms, and also to eliminate any conditioning of mind that we've experienced from other things that we've learned and practiced as part of our progress in life. And depending on where we've grown up, what community we've grown up, and what teachings that have been exposed to us, we might actually have certain conditioning of the mind where we maybe fear God, or some people might actually have hatred or anger or ill will towards God, or some people might feel like they're trying to worship God and fulfill God's predetermined path of what they feel that God is intending for them, as if God has laid out a path for them and they have to either be on that path or off that path. There's all these different aspects of understanding this being of God that is really important to get to liberation of mind. Even something like prayer. Sometimes we're doing things in prayer if somebody's choosing to pray that can actually be a hindrance to your enlightenment. So today we're going to sort all this out and make sure that you understand how you can practice either with a relationship with God, if that's something that you would like to have, and still get to liberation, to enlightenment, or you can practice in a way where you don't have any relationship at all with this being called God, and you can still get to liberation, to enlightenment that way as well. So I'm going to be covering both aspects of this as we go through our class today. So feel free to ask any questions as we go. To get us started, I would like to just define what I mean when I say God. This might not actually match to your definition of God, 
but it's important that I share the definition that I use so that as we use the word God or we use some other language in our class today and as we read this book and we start to understand these teachings on God, that you understand what I mean when I say God because of the universal truth of impermanence different people think of God in different ways. So in order to share this topic with you and have a discussion, it's important that we come from a similar definition and a similar understanding of this being God. And the way that I define God in this chapter is God is the creator of the universe and the source of all moral authority, the supreme being. Essentially, God is all-knowing and all-powerful. This is called omniscience or omnipotent. This being called God is referred to in other cultures in different ways. There's people who practice Muslim teachings who might refer to this being as Allah. And there's other cultures and other traditions that refer to this being that I'm describing in other ways with other names. This is the universal truth of impermanence. Not everybody refers to this being in the same way. So there's different language being used. But when I use this word God, what I'm referring to is the creator of the universe and the source of all moral authority, this supreme being. And when we talk about moral authority, what we're really describing here is we're describing moral conduct or virtuous behavior. Gautama Buddha describes this as part of his teachings in what I describe as the natural laws of existence. There's different aspects of his teachings that relate to moral conduct or virtuous behavior. And what I'm sharing is in my perspective, it's God that is the moral authority and understanding of this moral conduct. It's Gautama Buddha as a teacher who shared the teachings, not necessarily for God, not as a prophet of God, not a messenger of God, but just as a teacher. And that's what we're learning as part of this path to enlightenment is this moral conduct or virtuous behavior that as we do wholesome things in the world and we make wholesome decisions, wholesome things happen. There's wholesome outcomes. Whereas if we do unwholesome things, then unwholesome things will happen for us. We have unwholesome outcomes. But it's this moral authority of God that understands this natural laws of existence. And the way that we can think of moral conduct or virtuous behavior is holding or manifesting high principles for proper conduct. So there's kind of this natural law of gamma that we all are understanding as part of this path to enlightenment. And through understanding this natural law, we start to understand this proper conduct that doesn't cause harm to others. So therefore, harm doesn't come back to us. What's important to understand as we start talking about God, and you're going to see the Buddha's words on this as we get going in today's class, is that we all have free will. This being God does not control us, does not treat us like robots, making sure that we do certain things based on God's wishes or God's demands or God's desires or cravings or anything like that. We have the free will choice to do anything that we would like to do. We will experience the consequences of that. If we make wise decisions, we will experience wholesome outcomes. If we make unwise decisions, we will experience unwholesome outcomes. And this is based on our own free will. And what this path is about is gaining wisdom so that the more wisdom we have, we will make better free will decisions as part of our life journey, not only in training our mind and learning these teachings, but also the way that we interact with our intentions, speech and actions and having wisdom in the mind about this 
higher principles of proper conduct with our free will, we can now make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes in our life. It's important to understand that God doesn't grant enlightenment. God isn't the one who decides whether we are enlightened or attain enlightenment or experience enlightenment or not. It's through our own free will choices that in learning and practicing these teachings, we make wiser and wiser choices. And it's our choices about training our mind and the way we conduct ourselves in the world that determines whether our mind actually experiences this enlightened mental state. A practitioner attains enlightenment through all of our own wholesome choices by extinguishing our unwholesome choices. Prior to this path, we are making various decisions that we think are the best decisions in the world, but because we're unknowing of true reality, we're lacking wisdom of these natural laws of existence, we're making decisions that even though our best intentions might be to be wholesome, because of our lack of wisdom, we're making unwholesome decisions, unwise decisions through our intentions, speech, and actions that lead to certain unwholesome results. And it's when we gain this wisdom and we make more and more wholesome choices that we then can practice in such a way to train the mind and experience enlightenment. And that all occurs based on our own free will choices, not based on God or God granting enlightenment to us. So I'd like to pause right here before we really get going in today's class to see if you guys have any questions on what I'm describing as God. Again, it might not match to what your definition or your understanding of God is at this point, but at least you understand where I'm coming from in terms of the content and the teachings that I'm going to share with you today. You can at least understand this. So the way that you ask questions is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions directly. Hello, teacher. As for the point about uh, having free will, uh, the question is, if we have free will, so um, we didn't choose this life, we didn't choose being born on these uh, certain families in a certain uh, country. We actually did choose. It's our choice to keep craving anger and ignorance in the mind. It's our choice to remain unknowing of true reality, which has allowed us to continue to exist in this cycle of rebirth. And just like now, people are choosing to learn these teachings and work towards liberating the mind through training the mind. That's a choice as well. So by us choosing to train the mind to eliminate craving, anger and ignorance, and all those 10 fetters, then the mind experiences this enlightened mental state and we escape the cycle of rebirth and we're no longer born. So it's our choice to remain in the cycle of rebirth through our lack of wisdom. And that's what's causing us to continue to be reborn in life over and over and over again. And then based on those choices of the condition of our mind in our past life, that's what determines what realm we're going to be reborn in, what condition our physical body is in, what type of family we're born into, and so forth and so on. So do you consider going through all of these five rounds was God's plan for us? As I mentioned, God doesn't have a specific plan for us. God is a practitioner of these teachings. You can think of God as a very high, well-developed practitioner of these teachings that he doesn't have craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing and strong eagerness that 
we are understanding as part of craving desire attachment god doesn't have a craving for us to be any particular way or have any predefined plan for us otherwise we wouldn't have free will he would be controlling us but because he doesn't have craving desire attachment he's unattached to us in terms of he's practicing unconditional love just like a parent has unconditional love for their child and is interested in seeing their child do well if we practice non-attachment with our child then we understand that our child has to make their own decisions in life and we shouldn't be there to try to control their decisions we should just share wisdom with them in order to help them make decisions but then ultimately the decision is their own choice so god functions in the same way he has unconditional love that he's not trying to persuade us or control us or otherwise manipulate us into being one way or another because in his view he loves us regardless he has this loving kindness and compassion just like we're cultivating as part of this path and he doesn't try to control us to be one way or another on zoom jen has a question do beings born into the other realms understand that they are there as a result of their choices unless somebody's practiced these teachings they wouldn't necessarily understand that so in the hell realm the animal realm the afflicted spirit realm these realms they can't really develop their wisdom because of the various qualities of their existence and also what's going on in those realms in the heavenly realm they can actually learn and practice these teachings but they're oftentimes very complacent because there's only exclusively pleasant feelings being experienced in the heavenly realm there is no painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant so they experience exclusively pleasant feelings and they oftentimes are complacent but you can attain enlightenment through learning and practicing in the heavenly realm and escape the cycle of rebirth there but oftentimes those beings are reborn down into other realms because of their complacency in the heavenly realm the heavenly realm isn't a permanent resting place none of these realms are permanent beings are born and reborn in and out of these realms all the time and as somebody chooses to learn and practice these teachings then they're aware of what's happening and then they can take action in order to improve the condition of the mind and whether or not they're actually reborn or not it's here in the human realm that is the most ideal place for us to learn and practice these teachings because we experience all three feelings we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and we have the ability to cultivate our mind. So we tend to have the motivation and encouragement to actually learn and practice where in the heavenly realm they're able to attain enlightenment, but they don't often have the motivation. And in the lower realms, they are incapable of developing their mind all the way to enlightenment, but they can develop their mind. For example, there's many stories with animals that you guys might have seen. There was one recently that I just saw about a rat in Cambodia who was trained to sniff out landmines in Cambodia. And because the rat was really light, it didn't set off the landmines. And it discovered a hundred different landmines during the course of its life, which ultimately saved a tremendous amount of human life as a result of this and probably animal life as well. So that particular rat, even though it was a rat, it was trained by human beings 
and it practiced a certain amount of loving kindness, a certain amount of compassion, and it was able to function in a way that through this natural law of gamma, even though it didn't have the wisdom of this natural law of gamma, it still made certain choices to learn from these human beings and do this activity and this task. And a animal like that is very likely to be reborn into the human realm or even the heavenly realm straight out of the animal realm. It could easily be reborn into a human existence or a heavenly existence because of its choices as part of its animal existence. And there's other stories like this with animals in the animal realm, but even though they're not aware of the natural law of gamma, it's still affecting them. Just like the natural law of gravity, that we were unaware of the natural law of gravity when we were an infant and a toddler and growing up, but it still affected us. So these natural laws of existence, the natural law of gamma, it still affects us and it affects not only what we experience in life, but it affects our rebirth as well. A question from Donny, you right. May I know what did the Buddha share about fate? The Buddha didn't talk about fate because fate is kind of like a predetermined thing where the Buddha understood that nothing is predetermined. It's all about our choices and decisions right now in the present moment that lead to certain results in the future. So it all depends on the choices that we're making. There's no such thing as fate or, you know, we're destined to experience one particular thing or another because everything's happening in the present moment and based on our specific choices right now, it's going to lead to the next thing. So we're constantly making choice after choice after choice in our life and it's leading to the next thing in life. Now, there are beings, including God, that can understand what is going to happen in the future. This is like a psychic ability. This is one of the things that happens even for people in the unenlightened state. They can have psychic abilities. And then as people's minds awaken, they oftentimes have psychic abilities. People are able to know the future, but that doesn't mean the person is destined for that. It's still a matter of choices and decisions. So if somebody has a psychic ability and they could accurately predict what's going to happen five years from now, it's not that person's fate of what's going to happen five years from now. It's just because of the choices and decisions that individual who has those special abilities can see what's going to happen five years from now. But it's still a cause and effect or action and result. It's still all the natural law of gamma. A question from Manan. She writes, what is God's function in this functioning, uh, function, yeah, in existing and is the specific to a particular realm? Yeah, so the way that I think about God is I think about God in the heavenly realm and being a part of the heavenly realm. And the purpose that I think of when I think about God is his purpose is to share this wisdom with those people who are interested to understand it. This isn't something that the Buddha taught, but based on my experience, that God will share this wisdom when people seek his guidance. He doesn't push it into your life. He doesn't try to control you. He's not there for you every single second. If you ask him a question every single second, he's not going to miraculously give you this wisdom as we are going to talk about as we progress here today. But his purpose is essentially to help us, just like any parent would, is as they see their children challenged and struggling, they're going to be there to help them with wisdom as they 
are seeking that wisdom. The second part of Manan's question, she writes, Would the Buddha, being known and reached the fully perfectly enlightened one, also be a type of God? No, this is a misunderstanding that a lot of people have that you'll see in the Buddhist world that people oftentimes will say that the Buddha is a god or even an avatar. But the Buddha never described himself as a god. He only ever described himself as a human being, as a teacher, even though people nowadays and you know after his death have gradually certain people have attributed the qualities of God to him and maybe think of him as a god, the Buddha himself never said he was a god. So we shouldn't mistakenly think that he is a god or consider him a god because he's not he was a human being there are places in his teachings where he talks about being god in a previous life and essentially the way that i read what he's sharing there is that it seems like in previous lives he was able to see things in the world as if he was god but that was in previous existences in his existence when he became a fully perfectly enlightened buddha he was a human being he was a teacher he wasn't a god so even though you see people that will say that he was a god or that he was an avatar this is something that people are adding after his death and it's not something that he said so it wouldn't be wise for us to consider him a god when he himself never said that jen writes thank you teacher david so can we also, being mindful, think about the likely results of our actions into the future? Yes, so that's part of what this path is about, is thinking about our decisions that we're making right now and how they're going to impact us in the future. The more wisdom that we have around the natural law of gamma and all the other natural laws, then we will be more able to make wise decisions in the present moment that lead to these wholesome outcomes. So that's part of what this path is, is being able to think through a decision before you make it so that you make a wise decision that leads to wholesome outcomes. This is a very helpful way to practice is that if you're ever experiencing a challenging situation, rather than continue forward because of craving, desire, attachment, trying to get to the end of something, you can put a pause on what's happening and really think through and reflect and contemplate what would be the wisest decision in this situation and take a few hours or even a few days if you can to think through your decisions before you make them so that then you can bring the full wisdom of the Buddhist teachings into any particular decisions you make because each decision we make is going to lead to a certain outcome. And this is where a Buddhist teacher also comes in, in addition to everything else we do, that if you're struggling with a certain decision in your life or multiple decisions, and you've got some time that you don't need to make those decisions very quickly, you can actually reach out to your teacher, either privately or in other ways, to solicit input and guidance on what's happening in your life. It doesn't mean you have to follow what a teacher says, and a teacher that is helping to guide you, they should never tell you what to do. They should never give you a specific decision to make. Instead, they should share teachings and then allow you to make your own decision and your own choice. But this is one of the benefits that you can have as part of learning with a teacher who you know, who you trust, 
who you have confidence in and who that teacher knows you as well, you can reach out to them as you need help in your life about how to apply these teachings in certain situations. So by putting pause on certain decisions that were about to make particularly impactful decisions, you can gather up wisdom, not just from your Buddhist teacher, but from your life partner, from your friends, from your parents, from other people. And then you pull all of this together and then you make whatever decision is in your best interest based on the situation that you're experiencing. The second part of Jean's question, she writes, we are not prescient, but just realizing what might occur because of our actions. Can you read that again, Bassam? Yeah, sure. Uh, she writes a question, uh, we are not prescient, but just realizing what might occur because of our actions. What's that word we are not present, did you say? Impression. I, I meant we're not being psychic. Oh, okay. Yes. So even people who are psychic, it would be wise to still make decisions in the present moment based on what we understand to be the truth in the present moment. If we try to kind of manipulate things based on what we understand about the future, it wouldn't be a wholesome choice in my view because we're kind of uh, manipulating the situation. Instead, we should always base our decisions on the present moment. Nick has a question. He writes, how would an unenlightened being come to, come to develop special abilities like those of a psychic? I have always wondered about, uh, wondered how without teachings. Let's come back and circle back to that at the end of class, Bossom, so that we can discuss the topic for today and then we'll get into that if we have time at the end yeah sure teacher. any other questions about this definition of no. god no more questions okay so let's go to the next thing and kind of talk about what the buddha taught in terms of his teachings based on god and actually gods with an s is it's important to understand that gotama buddha never denied the existence of god but instead taught people how to attain enlightenment while still understanding God. It's a big misunderstanding in some Buddhist communities that people will say that the Buddha denied the existence of God. Or some people will say Buddhism doesn't acknowledge any gods. Well, this is a misunderstanding of the Buddhist teachings because you can read in this book series the words of the Buddha that is directly from the source text of the Pali Canon, particularly in volume 11, and even in some of the other volumes as well, where the Buddha is talking about various gods, because there was belief in multiple gods during the lifetime of the Buddha. And because people had beliefs in many different gods, he needed to teach about this in order to help people understand these various gods in terms of how it does or doesn't relate to enlightenment. So even though you might hear other people, you might even read books that talk about you know, God doesn't exist and that's Buddhism and that's what the Buddha said. This isn't actually true. When the Buddha talks, he talks about multiple different gods, but he frequently refers to this great God of Brahma. And this great God of Brahma is who we would consider to be God. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, which he died in 483 BCE, 
during that time, people believed in a lot of different gods. It wasn't until Jesus Christ came along about 500 years later that his objective was to essentially convince the world that there's only one God. So as humanity evolves, we need gradual training as a society, as a full humanity, just like our mind in this existence needs gradual training to get to enlightenment. Humanity as a whole needs this gradual training. So the Buddha didn't deny God. He didn't attempt to either prove or disprove God's existence. He focused people's attention on liberation, on leading people to enlightenment, not based on belief, but independently verifiable truth through acquiring wisdom. And because the Buddha didn't have any independently verifiable truth to either prove God's existence or disprove God's existence. Instead, he taught people how to liberate the mind while taking into consideration these different beliefs that people had at the time. And this is what I'm gonna do in our class today is based on what we understand about this being God today is help you understand how to liberate the mind either with a relationship with God or without a relationship with God. Because you'll be able to do this based on your understanding of today's class and this particular chapter as well. Gautama Buddha focused practitioner's mind on understanding right view in the natural law of gamma, which is not based on God's creative actions. Oftentimes what we're often taught in various traditions is that God is controlling us as individuals or is controlling the world and to be a certain way. But this would lead us to think that we don't have free will. And if we think that way, then we don't have right view because everything that we experience in this life is a result of our decisions, either wise decisions that lead to wholesome results or unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. Here's a words of the Buddha where he talks about God. So if you ever run across any book or any classes or any individual that says the Buddha denied the existence of God, here's just one place where the Buddha is actually talking about God. There's multiple places in his teachings where he discusses God, but this is one particular one that I would like to share with you to help you understand that you have free will, that it's not God that's controlling you. And the Buddha lays that out really clearly here. Because during his lifetime, there was him teaching in his community, and there were other teachers who were teaching their individual communities. And all these different teachers were claiming it was their teachings that led to enlightenment. But now we know 2,500 years later that indeed it was Gautama Buddha's teachings that led to enlightenment. That's why they're still around today. And we don't know anything much about these other teachers. During the lifetime of the Buddha, not only were these various aesthetics and practitioners that were looking to understand enlightenment and attain enlightenment by various teachers, but there were also Brahmin or Brahmin priests. These are essentially like Hindu priests who were essentially teaching people to believe in these multiple gods, and then people would come and pay them, and then they would pray on their behalf. The thought was at that particular time that an individual couldn't pray to these gods by themselves because they were just a commoner the way that people thought, that they were just kind of a low-level, kind of low-caste person. And it was these Brahmin who were kind of this upper-class 
group of people, these priests that had this special ability to communicate with God. So these people, the vast majority of the population was taught that you had to pay these Brahmin priests and then they would pray on your behalf. And the Buddha understood this about the Brahmin and understood that these other people who were aesthetics that were practicing, what they were practicing wasn't leading to enlightenment. And at different times, the Buddha would come in contact with Brahmin and with these students of other teachers and then the teachers themselves. They would actually eat in a common area. And the people who were donating food was giving food to the Buddha and his community, but they were also giving food to these other aesthetics too. And all these people would often congregate in a particular place and actually eat together. And during those meals or afterwards, there would sometimes be discussions. And this particular teaching that I'm gonna share with you guys is one of the times where the Buddha is actually asking questions to these other aesthetics and these Brahmin to help understand what they think and what they believe and then helping them to see a little bit of the truth. So this is titled, All is Caused by God's Creative Action. Then monks, I approach those aesthetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine in view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by God's creative activity. All right, so this first part, essentially what he's saying is he approached people that had the view or had the thought or had the teachings that discontentedness, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant are actually caused by God, and that God's the one who causes this discontentedness in our mind. So. The Buddha approached these people that think this way and believe this way. And he said to them, or I said to them, Is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? When I asked them this, they affirmed it. So basically they're like, yeah, that's what we know is God's causing us to be discontent. That's the reason why we're angry. That's why we're frustrated. That's why we're irritated. That's why we have happiness, excitement. That's why we have boredom or loneliness or guilt or shame or fear. All of these discontent feelings are being caused by God. And they affirmed it to the Buddha. They said, yeah, that's why we experience discontentedness. Then I say to them, in such a case, is it due to God's creative activity that you might destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong view? So the Buddha is like, okay, well, if God's the one's creating all this discontentedness, is he also the one who's doing all this other stuff? Which is essentially he's laying out the five precepts mostly here. And then he talks about full of longing, which is craving, a mind of ill will, which is anger, and holding wrong view. This is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So he's saying, is it God that's causing all of these things? And then he says, those who fall back on God's creative activity as the essential truth, have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done. 
nor do they make an effort in this respect. So he's saying if you're blaming God for all of this stuff and that God's the one who's creating all these difficulties and challenges in your life, then you're not even interested in improving your life and doing what should be done and avoiding what should not be done. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded. They do not guard themselves. And even the personal designation aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them. So here the Buddha is saying that they're muddle-minded, meaning their mind is confused. They lack clear comprehension. They don't have mindfulness. Their mind is lacking this concentration, this mindfulness, this clarity of mind, right? And he's saying they don't guard themselves. Whenever the Buddha talks about guarding, that's mindfulness. It's mindfulness or awareness of mind that is guarding the mind. And then when he says even the personal designation aesthetic could not even be legitimately applied to them, an aesthetic during the lifetime of the Buddha is someone who's on the path to enlightenment and seeking to experience this enlightened mental state. So if somebody's lacking the understanding that God is not causing all of these difficulties and struggles, then the Buddha is essentially saying, you're not even on the path to enlightenment if you think that it's God who's causing all these different things. So this is an important teaching to understand because here the Buddha is explaining very clearly that you have free will, that it's not God who's causing any difficulties or any struggles in our life that we're actually causing it ourselves. And this is part of right view that those four noble truths, he explains that it's our responsibility, that it's our craving, desire, attachment that's causing all the discontentedness in our mind. Further, some additional teachings that the Buddha shares related to this chapter and things that I share is he talks about things that he doesn't teach. He declared a whole lot of teachings during his life. He shared 45 years worth of teachings and there's these books of the Pali Canon, these very large, very big books. There's 45 of them that captured his teachings. And I imagine even in those 45 books, they probably didn't capture all the teachings that he shared. So he shared an enormous amount of teachings during his 45-year teaching career. But then there's actually parts in his teachings where he makes it very clear of what his undeclared teachings are. And this is important as it relates to this chapter and what you might have been taught based on other traditions, is that he left these teachings undeclared, whether the world is eternal whether it's not eternal, meaning whether it's going to last forever or not last forever, whether the world is finite or infinite in terms of its size and space, whether the soul is the same thing as the body or the soul is one thing and the body is another. The Buddha actually didn't teach about a soul. He left that as an undeclared teaching because if there's this permanent soul that goes from life to life to life, this conflicts with the universal truth of impermanence it conflicts with the universal truth of non-self. So there isn't this teaching about a soul. He just left it as an undeclared teaching. And then he also left this as an undeclared teaching, is that after death, the Tathagata, meaning himself, an enlightened being, either exists, does not exist, both exist and does not exist, or neither exists nor does not exist. 
We know that an enlightened being, when they attain enlightenment and die, they're not going to experience another existence in the cycle of rebirth. But that's very different than what the Buddha is explaining here. Some people will tell you that once you're enlightened and you die, that you no longer exist, that there is no existence, there's nothing after enlightenment. This isn't true based on the Buddha's teachings and the words of the Buddha. He never taught whether we exist, whether we don't exist, whether we both exist and do not exist or neither exist nor not exist. This is basically the way of the Buddha covering all possible options. So what we might describe this as is an afterlife, right? If we don't attain enlightenment in this life, we know that there's going to be rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. But in terms of what happens once the mind is enlightened and what happens next if somebody dies, if anything at all, this was an undeclared teaching. So if you've been taught that once you die, you have eternal life, the Buddha's undeclared teachings is saying he's not declaring whether that's true or false or whether that's actually what's going to happen or not. He's leaving it as an undeclared teaching. So you will need to get to the point in your practice that you don't have a craving, desire, attachment to understand these things. Because it's an undeclared teaching, it's important to be sure that you don't have this craving, desire, attachment to understand it because the Buddha only ever taught what leads to enlightenment. There's a famous teaching where the Buddha is walking in the woods, in the forest, in the jungle with his monks and with his ordained practitioners and he reaches down and he picks up some leaves in his hands and he says you know monks let me ask you a question what is more all the leaves overhead or these leaves in my hand what is more and the monks say oh of course all the leaves overhead and all the trees is much more than those few leaves that you've picked up in your hand and he says so too is the wisdom that i acquired through my self-awakening and awakening to enlightenment. All the leaves over the head represent all the wisdom that he actually gained as part of his awakening to enlightenment. But the leaves in his hand represent his teachings and what he's actually going to teach in terms of what leads to enlightenment. So while these are undeclared teachings, he had them as undeclared teachings for a reason. Because when you actually experience enlightenment, the mind is utterly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The mind never experiences any discontentedness whatsoever from that moment forward or from that period of time forward. The mind is utterly peaceful. There is nothing but joy in the mind. There's never a bad mood even. There's, it just doesn't happen for an enlightened being. So if somebody is having this longing to know what's next, this craving, they're not going to be able to experience that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that we call enlightenment. But if you're experiencing that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, that is the enlightened mind. If there isn't something next after this life, then so be it. Your mind is already so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, you won't give it a concern. You won't give it a care. But if there is something after this life, having attained enlightenment, it's either as good as what we're experiencing in the enlightened mental state or perhaps better. But again, the Buddha didn't declare whether there is existence in some 
other aspect of what he taught as part of this path because there's enough craving desire attachment for an unenlightened being to eliminate by itself just all the relationships you have all the possessions you have all the different things you need to train the mind to eliminate this mental longing and strong eagerness and this clinging of holding on to these things so tightly that's a big enough challenge by itself if there is something next after enlightenment and say it's just an amazing thing if the buddha would have declared that teaching that's just one more thing for the unenlightened mind to have to overcome and eliminate the craving desire attachment for so if the buddha understood what was next and i don't know that there is anything next he was very wise not to teach it but there may not be anything next or he may have understood what was next and just chose not to teach it i suspect that he had never experienced it before because he only ever taught things that he experienced because as an enlightened being he had never experienced being enlightened and experiencing death because an enlightened being wouldn't come back into the world. So he only ever taught things that he experienced. So having not experienced enlightenment and thus death before, he most likely didn't know if there was anything next or if he did, he just wisely chose to not declare it as part of his teachings. So you'll need to let go of this idea or this concept or this thought or this belief, this misunderstanding, this misperception that you're going to live eternal life, that you're going to have this long life that just never ends, even when there's death in this human existence, that you're just going to live forever. Because if you hold on to cling to existence, then you're going to continue to be reborn in the cycle of rebirth. So it's better to just understand these are undeclared teachings and let them go, knowing that you're never going to get the answer to them as long as you're in this life. And then once you attain enlightenment and die, then you'll find out what happens. But if you never get to enlightenment and you have this craving, desire, attachment to know what's next, then you're never going to get to experience enlightenment. So focusing your attention and your practice on getting to enlightenment would be the way to practice in order to ensure that you actually get to experience enlightenment itself, that peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on the various things that I've been discussing related to Gautama Buddha's teachings. When uh, for the undeclared teaching, when the Buddha is uh, talking about whether the Tathagata exists, I think this one is clear does not exist also clear but uh, what is not clear for me is how for a being to be both exists and does not exist at the same time <laughs> yeah the way that i read this and the buddha does this frequently in his teachings is he covers all possible options because remember a buddha is sharing teachings that are going to be preserved long after his death and he's not going to be there in order to clarify any mis understandings so what a buddha will often do is they will teach in such a way that it gives no doubt no misunderstandings no opportunity for someone to kind of wiggle something in when they're dead but instead he covered all the possible options if he would have just said you know after death a tathagata exists or does not exist then someone says oh well maybe he exists but he doesn't exist you know they might actually add something after his death but by him including it like this 
then it eliminates all possible options for somebody to include something after his death that he didn't say. Well, so do you consider seeking answers for these questions as a kind of grieving? Yes, because if the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha is not declaring these teachings, then there's a reason for that. And say he didn't know the answer to these questions. Just let's assume that for a moment. If he didn't know the answer to these questions, he's a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. How could somebody who's unenlightened, who's learning his teachings, even fathom that they would be able to figure out the answer to these questions if the Buddha himself wasn't able to figure it out? I don't know that he didn't know the answer to these questions. He might have very well known the answer to these questions. But if we assume that he didn't know, then how could anybody else even fathom that they would be able to figure this out? So if somebody has a longing or yearning to know the answer to these questions or attempts to try to figure them out, to me, that would just be craving. It's better to just have confidence in the Buddha in his teachings and realize that he didn't declare these for a specific reason, cross them off your list. These are things that you don't have to figure out. You don't have to focus on because there's enough other things to learn and practice in his teachings that you don't need to focus on these things and just cross it off your list. And now you don't have to crave to know the answer to these things. Well, so the motivation for learning and practicing these teachings and attaining enlightenment shouldn't be to have a more peaceful and happiness in uh, afterlife, after death. Right. That's not the goal of these teachings. The goal of these teachings is not to attain an afterlife. Instead, it's to eliminate discontentedness in this life. And having done so, there will not be rebirth. So that there won't be any further sickness, aging, death, sorrow, displeasure, and despair. If there's rebirth into any realm, that means your discontentedness just continues from there. So the goal is not to experience an afterlife, but instead to end this whole cycle of continuous birth where the mind is just roaming and wandering in all these different realms, experiencing all this misery, displeasure, and despair. Well, thanks, Tisha. No more questions. All right. So now let's talk about aspects of these teachings that you'll need to understand if you would like to have a relationship with God in terms of attaining enlightenment. And I base this off of what you may have been exposed to in other traditions. And then towards the end of this, we're going to also talk about how you can practice the Buddhist teachings without a relationship with God as well. But first, let's cover having a relationship with God. So what's important is that you understand that it is possible to have a relationship with God and still get to enlightenment. And it's also possible to not have a relationship with God and still get to enlightenment. But if you're going to choose to have a relationship with God, it's important that you practice right view, that you understand and practice those four noble truths, realizing that God is not controlling you and he doesn't have this predefined path that you have to worship him and you have to figure out what is it that he's asking you to do as part of this path. He's not attached to you doing any one particular thing or another. It's important to understand that there's this cause and effect, this action and result, that everything that we experience in this life is a result of our decisions. And because many people learn about God through the teachings of Jesus Christ, 
It's important to understand Jesus Christ taught exactly the same thing. Jesus Christ said, you reap what you sow. This is the natural law of gamma. But here we are 2,000 years after the death of Jesus. We're 2,500 years after the death of Gautama Buddha. And people have taken the natural law of gamma in the words of Jesus. And there's been this impermanence that has happened all these years. And people misunderstand. So if you're going to practice and have a relationship with God, it's important to understand that he doesn't want anything specific from you. He doesn't want you to do anything particular. It's important to understand that all your decisions lead to certain results. And that's the same thing that the Buddha taught. It's the same thing that Jesus Christ taught. So if you understand that and you have this cause and effect, this action result, this free will to make your own choices, and you understand the Four Noble Truths in terms of how you cause your own discontentedness and you can eliminate that discontentedness through your own personal choices, then you're understanding right view and you just need to practice that more and more in your daily life. And then in terms of eliminating craving in the mind, there's oftentimes a lot of cravings in the mind related to God. One of the primary cravings that people have related to God is we're often taught to pray and ask God for favors, or we might have certain wishes, almost treating God like a genie in a bottle. You know, if somebody gets sick or somebody gets ill, you might pray to God, asking God to heal this person. Or if you're having financial difficulties, you might pray to God and ask for wealth or money or something like this. Or you might pray to God asking for a new job. It's important for you to understand that God doesn't do this. And if you're led to believe that that's what God does, if you have an injured or sick relative and you pray to God asking God to heal this person and they end up dying, then you're probably going to have a lot of anger towards God because God didn't do what you asked, right? You didn't get the objects of your affection. You didn't get your craving, desire, attachment fulfilled. So therefore, painful feelings are going to come into the mind and then you're going to falsely attribute this to God and then you're going to have aversion and you're going to push God away thinking that God's turned his back on you. When in reality, you just haven't learned the truth that God doesn't function like a genie in a bottle. We don't pray to God in order to ask for favors. But instead, if you would like to pray, you can pray. Gautama Buddha never taught prayer, but I'm sharing with you, if you would like to pray as part of a relationship with God, you can. And you can still get to enlightenment. What I would suggest that you do in terms of adjusting your prayers based on this understanding that God is not a genie in a bottle is that you perhaps pray and kind of have a conversation with God. In this conversation with God, let him know that you believe in him and that you know that he exists. Let him know that you're open to his guidance and give him thanks for guiding you if that's what you would like to do. But if you're on your knees or you're somewhere praying and you're asking for favors from God, this isn't how this works. This isn't how this functions. And just as I explained to you throughout this program, throughout the book, through all my teaching, that I suggest that you never believe anything that I say. You don't have to believe me on this one. You don't have to believe anything I say. You can actually test it right now. You can put your hands together. You can pray for a million dollars because you would like to give a million dollars to famine-stricken children in Africa or South America. 
And you can pray for that million dollars right now and see if it shows up. And if you pray right now and it doesn't show up, then you've just practiced. You've just practiced and you've been able to see the truth that that million dollars didn't show up. And now you know the truth and you have the wisdom that God is not a genie in a bottle. If anybody has that million dollars show up, go ahead and raise your hand and let us know so that we can make arrangements to have it shared with people in Africa and South America. And if we don't see anybody raise your hand or send in a comment, then we know that this didn't happen, right? So now we know the truth, that God is not a genie in a bottle, despite what we've been taught perhaps in the past. So if you would like to pray and have a conversation with God, do that by all means, but ensure that your craving, desire, attachments aren't making their way into your prayer, but instead that you're perhaps letting God know that you believe, that you know he exists, that you're open to his guidance and give him thanks for essentially this relationship that you're establishing with him. If you have any craving, desire, attachment to be with God in heaven in the afterlife, if this is something that you've been taught, you need to eliminate that as well because that's not what occurs. The heavenly realm and beings in the heavenly realm are not there permanently because we know the universal truth of impermanence, right? If you've done any kind of work on this path to enlightenment, then you understand the universal truth of impermanence and you know that all these things are impermanent around us. So existence in the heavenly realm is not permanent because we know that because of the universal truth of impermanence. But if your mind craves to have existence with God in heaven, then you're still attached. You're still having craving, desire, attachment and clinging. And this is going to inhibit you from experiencing liberation of mind and enlightenment. And it's going to create rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. If you have any attachment whatsoever to God, and I've kind of mentioned a few of those, like if you're having difficulties and you stop and you're like, God, give me your wisdom right now, right? This is a craving, even though I shared that you can pray and let God know you're open to guidance, but that doesn't mean that you can just on a whim, you know, ask God for guidance every single moment and he's going to immediately, you know, beam down some wisdom into your mind. This would be an attachment. It's the same thing if you called me for every single decision that you were about to make, that would show that you're probably attached to your teacher because you're unable to make a decision on your own. So you need to accumulate wisdom and cultivate this wisdom without this attachment to God that he's going to immediately give you this wisdom whenever you demand it. If you can imagine being God and there's these billions of people around the world praying, asking for things all the time. If you had like five or 10 different friends calling you up every day, asking you for something, how many days would it take before you decide to no longer be friends with them? Right? Because this person is just constantly calling and calling and calling and asking for favors and asking for things just repeatedly over and over and over again. Well, God doesn't turn his back on us, but you understand that if you were God and you were somewhere in the world and there's just this constant proliferation of requests and begging and pleading and asking for things, when you know that that's not what you do, then this is an attachment, right? This is somebody who's attached to God and you need to let go of all of that and treat God just like you would a friend or a family member that you're 
have this relationship that you're cultivating with them, but you're not constantly, constantly, constantly begging for things from this being of God. Some other things to consider is that even though you have this relationship with God, there's this natural law of gamma, which is part of right view. It's cause and effect or action and result. You can't think of God as the one who's giving you food, for example. The food that you have that you eat every day, this wasn't provided to you from God. Because if you think that way, then what happens when you don't have food? You're going to think that God is punishing you. And when you have food, you're going to think God is rewarding you. Or if you buy a new car, you're going to think God's rewarding you. Or if you get in a car accident, you're going to think God is punishing you. This isn't what God does. It's the natural law of gamma. It's cause and effect or action and result. The reason why we have food in front of us is because of our decisions. And the decisions that we make, we have the ability to acquire the necessities that we need in life. The reason why we have a new car is because we worked and we acquired wisdom and we did really well in our job and we acquired a certain income that allowed us to buy this new car. It wasn't God that gave that to us. So it's important that you understand the natural law of God and that you don't think about God as having punishment and rewards. That's not what God does. As I mentioned at the beginning, God practices these teachings and he practices unconditional love. If you're a parent, you understand what unconditional love is, that you love your child, whether they do good, wholesome things, or if they're doing bad, unwholesome things, you still have love for them. You still love them unconditionally. Well, if we have the thought that God is punishing us and rewarding us, this isn't unconditional love. And if we think that God is going to send us to a really bad place, if we do bad things like hell for eternity, would you as a parent send your child to hell for eternity when they do something wrong? The answer is no. If you're a parent or even if you have unconditional love for your brothers and sisters or even if you own an animal and you have this unconditional love for your dog or your cat, if you were God and you were practicing this unconditional love, would you send your children to this doom and fire and hell and send them there for eternity? That's not what God does. So we don't need to have this fear that we are being punished or rewarded by God if we don't meet what God wants us to do. Because God doesn't have any craving, desire, attachments for the things that he wants us to do. He's also not controlling this world. It's our own decisions that lead to our own results. If there's anyone who's punishing us, it's us punishing ourselves Because of our lack of wisdom, when we make decisions and we have certain choices that lead to a certain result, that result is because of our own decisions. So if you get rid of this whole idea that God is punishing or rewarding us, then you can perhaps let go of any fear that you have in relationship to God. As I've mentioned previously, that you can understand God is a practitioner of these teachings, that he's not attached to us, that he's not responsible to restrain us, that if we're going to do something unwholesome, it's not his responsibility to pull us back and hold us back from that. In fact, if you have a child 
and you've told your child many times to not touch the hot stove and you've pulled them back and pulled them back and pulled them back and you've mentioned to them several times not to touch the hot stove but they keep going towards the stove eventually what you might choose to do as a parent is just let them get close to the stove and feel the heat coming off the stove and when they pull their hand back because they felt that heat now they've got the wisdom so even though you've told them 10 20 30 times not to touch the stove the craving desire attachment in the child's mind is they want to touch that stove and at a certain point you just kind of let them get close to the stove ensuring they're not going to permanently harm themselves in terms of this existence or this life and by doing so and not restraining them they actually gain wisdom so god's objective god's responsibility god's purpose is not to restrain us from all the harms that we do because part of that experience that we have we actually gain wisdom as a result of that and then we learn not to do that again so god isn't trying to control us or his responsibility isn't to restrain us and that's important for you to understand because sometimes people look at the world and they see all this harm in the world they see poverty they see famine they see people struggling with birth defects or they see accidents and harms that come to us and some people believe that god's the one who's causing all of that but if you understand the natural law of gamma and you understand that god is not controlling us then you understand that god isn't causing all of these problems in the world we are causing all these problems in the world back to the four noble truths it's cause and effect it's action and result we're causing the discontentedness in our mind and because of craving anger and ignorance we're making certain choices in the world that's leading us to things like a harmful environment if we think about the environment and we think about how the environment is really struggling and we've harmed our environment that's not god that did that that was all of us and all the people before us that have chosen to do things through our choices and decisions that have led to certain harms so it's important that you understand that god's job is not to restrain us he's not the one who's causing these harms on earth it's our own decisions that are doing that if you think about what this God may be interested in is God is interested in seeing all of us live in harmony but we can only do that if we acquire wisdom if we have craving anger and ignorance we can't live in harmony so it's this wisdom of the natural laws of existence that allow us to live in harmony with each other and of course God is interested in seeing that happen but he's not controlling it he's not forcing it he's not coercing us he's not fearing us He's not guilting or shaming us in to do that. He's allowing us to make our own free will choices. Are we going to acquire wisdom and improve our decision making or not? And it's our own choices, our own decisions. God is not punishing us and rewarding us for our decisions. It's our own decisions that are coming back and creating any kind of unwholesome results. So the more wisdom that we have about these natural laws of existence, then we can live in harmony with each other. And of course, God is interested in seeing that happen, but it's up to us to be able to choose to make that happen. Sometimes we've been taught that there's going to be a being that comes back and create heaven on earth. And people have been misled to think that this being is going to click their fingers and instantly create a perfect world 
which is heaven on earth. But this isn't what this being is going to do. This being instead is going to have teachings that are shared with the world. That is the wisdom that allows the world to be able to now make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome results. But when or if people choose to do that is totally up to those individuals. It's not God that's forcing people to do that. And it's not this being that's going to force others to do that. Everybody has to choose to do it based on their own free will. So if you understand these things, this is how you would need to practice in terms of having a relationship with God. But now let's just talk for a moment about if you don't have an interest in having a relationship with God, and then I'll open up to all the questions that you guys have. If you don't have an interest in having a relationship with God, then that's completely fine. My goal here today in our talk and in this particular chapter is not to convince anybody that God exists, and it's not to convince you to have a relationship with God. Your decision about whether you have a relationship or not have a relationship is completely up to you. There are some benefits in doing so, but there's also perhaps you might see some benefits in not doing so. But if you've had conditioning of your mind where you think that God is guilting us, shaming us, or fearing us into a relationship, or if you think God is punishing and rewarding us, and you maybe have some anger and hatred and ill will towards God, you're going to need to eliminate that. You're not going to be able to have a relationship with God in terms of attaining enlightenment if you have this anger, hatred, and ill will, but also if you are interested in not having a relationship with God, you're not going to be able to do that either and actually attain enlightenment. So if you're interested in not having a relationship with God, you need to still cultivate loving kindness and compassion for all beings. You need to eliminate any anger, hatred, and ill will that might have developed based on conditioning of the mind. If you've had certain negative experiences in a church or with certain leaders of a church or of certain mosque or certain temples or certain backgrounds where you've been brought up in a tradition that teaches about God and you've experienced certain harms as a result of that. You need to understand that those harms that were experienced was based on individual people who were in that community. It wasn't God that was doing those things. So if you've felt coerced or if you've experienced fear or guilt or shame that was being taught to you or you've been taught punishment and rewards or there's even some people in the world that have had sexual physical or mental abuse in places of worship where it's being taught that this is a place to worship god and it's really unfortunate that these people have experienced these things but this isn't God that did that. This was individual people that did that. So if there's any kind of anger, hatred, or ill will that has been developed as part of your experiences and your conditioning of growing up in this world, you're going to need to let all of that go. And even if you are interested in not having a relationship with God, that's completely fine. But if you harbor any anger, hatred, or ill will towards this being then that means that the mind isn't completely purified of anger, hatred, and ill will. You need to still get to loving kindness and compassion for all beings, even this being of God. So if you do have anger, hatred, and ill will, I've already taught how to eliminate that as part of this path, which is loving kindness meditation. 
So you can perhaps include God into your loving kindness meditation. Even if you're not interested in having a relationship with God, you still need to eliminate any anger, hatred, ill will that you have towards God or else that impurity is still going to be in the mind. That pollution is still going to be in the mind. And therefore, it's going to inhibit you from experiencing liberation and enlightenment. So whether you have a relationship with God or you don't have a relationship with God, you're still going to at least have to eliminate any anger, hatred, and ill will towards God as part of this path to enlightenment. That's everything that I was going to share on this topic. There's more details in this particular chapter, but what I would like to do is just open up to any questions that you might have. So any questions that you guys have on anything we've discussed today, you're welcome to ask those through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom and putting them into the comment section, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Well, I was wondering about uh, an entity like God who has a lot of love towards uh, his creatures. Why God didn't provide us the teachings that would lead to enlightenment without waiting for eons? for a Buddha or more Buddhas to arise in the world and uh, give these teachings? The way that I think about this is that humanity wasn't ready for them yet. As we evolved as beings of where we are today, early in life, we were beings that were trying to figure out how to even communicate with each other. There was at one point in time that our ancestors weren't even able to communicate. There were just grunts and moans. We were trying to figure out tools and how to eat and how to feed ourselves. We were figuring out how to cultivate food and how to create shelter and how to have clothing. So the beings that we are today and we think about our intelligence that we have, this was all based on consistent development over multiple, multiple centuries, going way, way, way back with human evolution. In human evolution, as we were gradually evolving, we were figuring out all kinds of things on the planet, and we weren't yet ready for the teachings to understand how to liberate the mind because we didn't even have communication with each other at one point. We didn't even have a consistent food supply at one point. But now we're at a point in history where this communication has been figured out, the cultivation of food has been figured out, Clothing has been figured out. Shelter has been figured out. Even our ability to share information. I mean, look at us sitting on the Internet now being able to share content all across the world, anywhere on the Internet. You know, this just wasn't possible so many years ago. So it's only now that we've gotten to the point where we can write these teachings down. We can capture them in audio and video. We can share them all over the world and all of humanity can now learn and practice to the point where all of us can attain enlightenment, liberate the mind, and actually create heaven on earth. Manal has a question. She writes, the mind is going back to think if there is embodied wisdom in the Buddha's words related to God beyond the message of eliminating craving and longing about what happens in the afterlife. Much similar to the Buddha's words in the Four Noble Truths, where the teaching ends with an indicator of what the path leading to elimination of discontentedness would be, the Eightfold Path. The mind is investigating if the words related to his undeclared teachings are inclusive of another teaching 
yet to be learned, but very profoundly revealing. Yeah, in terms of his undeclared teachings, these are his only undeclared teachings. And in terms of teaching about God, in volume 11 of this book series that I, I share, he talks about gods in multiple different gods. And he doesn't ever talk about worshiping these gods. He doesn't talk about prayer to these gods. He essentially helps people to understand that these gods are not actually impacting or influencing our life in any way. So that one particular teaching that I shared in this class and in this volume of the book, he really makes it very clear that we have free will. And at other points in his teachings, he just kind of references these other gods and these other beings, but never actually makes them a focal point of the path to enlightenment. If you look at the Eightfold Path, which is the path to enlightenment, there's never a time where God plays a central role in his teachings because, as I shared, God doesn't determine whether we attain enlightenment or not. With the Buddha observing that the vast majority of the population during his lifetime was paying money to these Brahmin priests in order to pray on their behalf, the Buddha understood that this wasn't how the world works, that these individuals who were paying money to these Brahmin priests and then these Brahmin priests were going off and praying, but yet these people going back to their farms and to their villages and to their businesses, they didn't have the wisdom that they needed about how to make better decisions in their life. So their life wasn't going to get any better by just paying money to the Brahmin and having them pray on their behalf. So the Buddha just kind of mentions these different gods and these different beliefs throughout his teachings, but he never makes it a focal point because he knows that the primary hindrance to all the difficulties and struggles that we have is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So what he's doing as part of his path to enlightenment is sharing wisdom. And it's that wisdom that is going to transform the mind and transform people's lives, not this giving money to Brahmin and asking them to pray on their behalf. And this also bred a lot of corruption during the lifetime of the Buddha because as people were paying money to the Brahmin, maybe they paid $5 today for a prayer, but tomorrow they showed up and it's like, oh, it's $50 now. Huh? Why? Well, because we said so. And these people had no recourse. They were believing that they couldn't pray to God themselves. So they were kind of stuck having to pay whatever money the Brahmin were asking for. So the Buddha cut through all of this in a very skillful way and helped people to observe that it's their own decisions that lead to certain results in the world. And it's their ignorance or their unknowing of true reality that is truly hindering them from experiencing liberation and experiencing a better way of life. So he delivered the wisdom that they needed and then they could see the truth for themselves, that they could independently verify his teachings, that it wasn't based on belief. And they could observe that the condition of the mind was gradually improving through practicing this Eightfold Path. And there's no part of the Eightfold Path, which is the path to enlightenment that involves God. Jen writes, thank you, Teacher David. I have learned while my mother was ill and died, the blue medicine, Buddha meditation. This included a salutation, a visualization, and a chant. To me, this was similar to prayer, but I was taught not to request anything such as that my mother be com comforted. Would you please offer some guidance about this sort of meditation? 
Yeah, so what the Buddha taught during his lifetime and what we have in the Pali Canon, this is the words of the Buddha. And then later, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 years later, Mahayana Buddhism comes about. And then off of that comes Zen Buddhism. And then about 1,000 to 1,200 years after the death of the Buddha comes Vajrayana Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism. These forms of Buddhism that they're labeling as Buddhism gets farther and farther away from what the Buddha actually taught. In these other forms of Buddhism, you will see rites, rituals, ceremonies, worship. You will see prayer. You will see belief that if you hit gongs, you know, certain magical things are going to happen. Or if you prostrate to the ground a certain number of times, these things will happen. So these are all things that aren't part of the path to enlightenment. What I would guide somebody to understand if their parent was sick or ill is rather than pray for any kind of beneficial outcome, is instead make wise decisions through consulting with medical practitioners to get the care for mom or dad or grandma or grandpa that they need in order to help them improve their medical situation. That's what's actually going to produce the benefit. And then at the same time, I would help them to understand to try to let go of any kind of craving, desire, attachment to mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, or whomever, because if this person does die in this particular situation, it's going to hurt really badly with the pain from the craving, desire, attachment. We know that mom and dad's going to die. We know grandma and grandpa's going to die, but not because God is killing them, not because God is taking them back. They're dying because they're born. This is the universal truth of impermanence. So if we understand that at the time that somebody's sick or at the time somebody's medically ill or they're having an injury, our first reaction shouldn't be to pray to God and ask for him to fix this situation. Our first response should be, let me maintain the calmness of mind. Let me maintain my mindfulness or awareness of mind. Let me maintain my concentration so that I can get some wisdom to come into this situation, talk with the medical professionals and get the help for the person who's in my family who's having a hardship. This is what's going to produce the results. And for someone who understands the natural law of gamma and that it's wisdom that's going to produce these beneficial results, then that's what's going to help us. Whereas if we ran into the hospital and we were demanding and forceful and impolite, unkind, unfriendly, disrespectful to the nurses and the doctors and the staff and all the people that are helping us, this isn't going to produce beneficial results for us. Whereas if we understand things like generosity, loving kindness and wisdom, as well as right intention, right speech and right action, now we can calmly enter into the hospital environment, assess the situation, understand what's going on, and see if there's some wise decision making that we can employ in order to help our family member who's maybe in a difficult situation with their health. And next says, if there's time, we can circle back to this question. Sure. Well, the question was, Teacher David, how would an unenlightened being come to develop special abilities like those of a psychic? I have always wondered how without teachings. Okay, so the Buddha explained how as the mind awakens, there is going to be psychic abilities that can potentially come into the mind or these special abilities. 
there's different types of special abilities that you can experience. And these are things that any of you might experience as your mind awakens. And the Buddha talks about how one shouldn't learn and practice these teachings in order to acquire these special abilities. That shouldn't be the focus or the goal, the objective of awakening the mind to attain these special abilities. And when somebody is experiencing these special abilities, they shouldn't use them for financial gain or for any kind of malicious, coercive type things. He talks about how his teachings are all about the elimination of discontentedness that even when these special abilities start coming into the mind, you have to not cling to them. You have to not hold on to them because if you cling or hold on to these special abilities, then your mind isn't going to get to liberation. So it's quite interesting and quite amazing when the mind starts awakening and you can start reading people's minds or you can start knowing the future. These things are quite interesting and quite amazing that the mind can actually do this but you have to get to the point where you ensure that you're not holding on or clinging to these things or else the mind's not going to actually get to enlightenment. So the Buddha talked during his lifetime and he said that he himself doesn't practice these things in terms of psychic abilities, in terms of knowing the future, in terms of all these different special abilities. He says he refrains from actually practicing these things, even though he knows that that's something that is experienced as part of awakening the mind. Now, someone who isn't on this path to enlightenment, they can have these special abilities even in the unenlightened state or as the mind is moving towards enlightenment or even not even being on the path at all. People can have these special abilities and it's just the way that the mind functions. There's no specific way that I can say, okay, in order to get these special abilities, this is what you have to do. You either have them or you don't. It's not a matter of of doing a particular thing in order to get these special abilities because that would be a craving desire attachment if somebody was pursuing certain objectives in order to acquire these things. The Buddha never talks about specifically how to acquire these special abilities, but instead you should understand that these things can happen as the mind is awakening or even for somebody who's off the path, they can experience these psychic abilities and various special abilities that are part of the mind. Well, do you consider developing a relationship with God as a bonus, as something that helps us in our path to enlightenment? I have found it to be very beneficial in all senses of the word. But as I mentioned, you don't have to have a relationship with God in order to get to liberation and to enlightenment. But through what I practice and the way that I experience is that God was utterly amazingly helpful to me and continues to be helpful to me on this path based on the relationship that I have with him. And as I mentioned, you can think about God as almost like a father or a grandfather or any friend or family member. And you can choose to have a relationship with that person. And that can be beneficial for you because you're tapping into that person's wisdom. Or you can choose not to have a relationship with them. But if you're choosing to not have a relationship with God or any person in your life, you need to be sure you're not doing that due to aversion or any kind of anger, hatred, and ill will. Because if you do, then the mind's not going to be able to get to liberation, to enlightenment. So 
if you decide to cultivate a relationship with God, I can help you with that based on what I share in this chapter, in this talk. If you would like personal guidance, I can help you with that. But that's your own personal choice. I would never tell somebody that they have to have a relationship with God. But if you choose to do that, you can do that in a healthy way that will be beneficial to you if it, you experience the same things that I experience. But also for some people, it can be very complicated and perhaps they're just really not interested in this relationship. And that's where you can just choose to not have a relationship with God and just be sure that you don't have any anger, hatred, or ill will. And that might actually simplify things for some people, depending on what your background is and depending on what your experience has been. Horacy has a question. Sure, it's when one has these special abilities and can see the future, can they then choose to follow a different path other than what's seen by making different choices? For me, when these special abilities started coming into the mind and I started being able to observe things in the future, it did help me to make decisions now in the present moment, but it also in some cases made it more difficult because a certain amount of arrogance and pride came into the mind when these things started happening. So as I started observing certain things about the future, I had to realize that there was arrogance and pride coming to the mind and work on eliminating that. So this special abilities, it can be very helpful perhaps, but it can also be detrimental too if you allow arrogance or pride to come into the mind thinking that you're so special because of your abilities to do this. Also, it's hard enough to let go of craving, desire, attachment for the future when you don't know the future. But when you know the future, it's really quite challenging to let go of craving, desire, attachment. If you know something specific is going to happen in the future and you have 100% clarity that certain things are going to happen, it can be really challenging and really difficult to let go of that and realize that you need to keep your mind in the present moment and make decisions based on the present moment. So if I was you guys, I wouldn't aspire to be able to have any special abilities because that would be your own craving, desire, attachment if you had this longing or this wanting for any special abilities. And if these special abilities start coming up into the mind, I suggest that you just train the mind to let them go and not allow arrogance or pride to come into the mind. And also don't allow the mind to crave and think that this particular thing is for sure going to happen. And then you try to make all your decisions such that that thing does happen. If you get some insight into something that's going to happen in the future, just, okay, that may or may not happen in the future. Still keep your mind in the, rooted in the present moment and making wise decisions based on the present moment. It seems that uh, civilizations, very old civilizations from thousands of years ago, know about God. So does this mean that God started contacting humanity and guiding humanity from many years? In my view, God has always been here and has always been interested in helping beings, but he's only going to provide guidance to those beings that are open to his guidance. If somebody, for example, is really deep in the darkness, even if God was trying to help that person, they wouldn't be able to be open and receiving to the message. And speaking from my own experience, in times in my life where maybe I was using drugs or alcohol, 
even if God was trying to help me during that time, I can't get the message because the mind is so much in the darkness and so polluted that you can't really receive any kind of guidance because your mind is incapable. You don't even have the wisdom to know that this is God's wisdom coming through. So as you get closer and closer to the light, as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, cleaning up your moral conduct, training the mind to have mental discipline, you'll be able to receive this guidance more readily from God and you'll have the wisdom on board of knowing what to do with that. Because even when you feel like you're getting certain wisdom from God, you can't treat it as the ultimate truth because you don't necessarily know of whether that is your thought or God's thought, perhaps, depending on how well developed you are to understand that this is God's wisdom coming through. You still have to be a individual practitioner who's looking at everything that you come in contact with as you're interested in understanding the truth and independently verifying what you're coming in contact with. So if you're getting something into the mind that you feel like is wisdom, you won't necessarily at the beginning know whether that's God's wisdom or is that this being Mara. This being Mara is what some people might refer to as the devil or Satan or Lucifer or something like this. So you still have to practice, right? This being of Mara that the Buddha talked about is there trying to influence you in negative, unwholesome ways. This being of God is there interested to share wisdom with you that will help you progress towards more and more wholesomeness, walking to the light. But when you get certain information into the mind as a wise practitioner, you should still evaluate that. You should still examine that. You should still investigate that, reflect on that, and still practice to see if it's true or not. And that way you'll be led to the truth and you'll know what the wisdom is. But if you just think like, oh, that was a thought from God and I've got to run out and do that because God told me to do it. This is where the mind's going to get diluted. Or if you're walking down the street and you see a feather from a bird and you're like, oh, God placed that feather there as a sign for me that I need more freedom and I need to branch out and meet new friends or something like this. This isn't what God does. This isn't how God shares wisdom with you. So as you walk closer and closer on this path and you awaken your mind more and more, clearing out the pollution in the mind, you will be more open and available to receive this wisdom from God. And then once you experience the wisdom, you'll then be able to know what to do with it. Once you experience it, you'll be able to practice in order to figure out, is this the truth or not? Some of us were taught that God exists everywhere. Is that true? In my view, yes. God is everywhere, always around us, never turns his back on us. Nothing but love, kindness, compassion, politeness, respect, deep, 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 profound wisdom. Yes, he's, he's always there, but you're not going to always know he's there. And if you have a craving for him to be there, he's not going to necessarily show up on demand, right? It's not like Netflix that you can just turn on a movie and bam, you've got a movie and then, you know, bam, you sit down and God's going to automatically give you what you want. That's why if you develop and cultivate this relationship where in prayer, you let him know that you believe in him, that you know that he exists, that you are open to his guidance and wisdom, 
and that you thank him for his guidance and wisdom. Then as you're going through life, he knows that you have this relationship with him and he will guide you in terms of sharing wisdom with you. And you may or may not even know that it's his wisdom. He's not looking for credit. He's not looking for you to acknowledge in terms of, oh, thank you so much and worship him. You know, we've oftentimes been taught that you need to bow down and be, you know, constantly worshiping this God. And, you know, God is domineering and controlling this whole perspective of what God is, in my opinion, is not true at all. That hasn't been my experience at all. I've only experienced support, motivation, encouragement, love, kindness, compassion, politeness, kindness, friendliness, deep wisdom. There's no interest to push his way into my life. And when he feels that I need wisdom and I can benefit from that, then he shares that with me. And there's been times where I've wanted wisdom from him and I've asked him specifically and he never does. He never gives it to me in those particular situations. It's only when I'm just going about my day and I'm doing certain things that I know there's certain wisdom that comes from God. And as I practice that, it helps me on this path and it has helped me on this path. So you need to get to the point where you're not looking for this wisdom. You're not craving it but you're just kind of establishing this regular relationship through prayer and through acknowledgement that this being exists and that you're open to his guidance. And then uh, when he's ready and if he feels that he's able to help you, he will. Does this mean that we can look at God as a role model? I think so, yes. If you understand what God is and you understand this God in terms of the way that I'm describing. If you think of God as punishment and rewards and that God is going to judge us at the end of our life, then oftentimes that's what people do in their life. You'll find parents who are very much into punishments and rewards or very much into judging other people. If you think that that's what God's doing, then that's probably what you're going to do too. But from my experiences, God doesn't do that. God doesn't punish and reward us, and God doesn't judge us. So if you look at God in the way that I describe in this chapter, in terms of this loving, caring, compassionate, friendly, polite, respectful, deep wisdom, and if you think about God in those terms, then yes, he can absolutely be a role model for you. But any of those unwholesome qualities that have perhaps been shared with you through other communities or other traditions, don't use any of that for a role model because that's not what's going to lead to liberation. That's all for today. All right. Well, thank you all for joining for today's class. As you see, this being of God is not necessarily what we grew up with, depending on what we've been learning and understanding as we've grown up. And I realized that things that I've shared today might be very different than what you've been exposed to in the past. And in my view, that's very good. If you're learning from a teacher who's sharing everything with you that you already know, then you have no use for that teacher whatsoever. They're not going to benefit you at all because everything they say you already know. So if there's things that I've shared today that are different or opposite or completely in conflict with what you've understood about this being of God in the past, to me, that's a very good thing because you're getting 
a new perspective and a different view of this being of God. And that can really help you to move forward in life and start to better understand and have a more healthy relationship with this being of God. Because if we go around thinking that God is punishing and rewarding us, if we think that God wants us to constantly worship him, if we think that God is here to fear us into doing certain good or bad things, then we're going to have a very difficult and turbulent relationship with God. And that might be where you've been so far in your life. And if that's where you've been, I completely understand because I've gone through those experiences myself. But to liberate the mind and give it this freedom as it relates to this being of God, if you start thinking about God in the way that I've described in this chapter, and if you'd like some more guidance, you're welcome to reach out and get some more guidance to maybe reflect on some of the things that you have been taught as a child and as you've been growing up. I'm more than pleased to help you, you know, better reflect on this being of God. This chapter and this talk isn't to tell you how you should think about God. It's not to force you or convince you that God exists or that God doesn't exist. It's not to impress upon you of what you should think about God. This chapter and this talk is really just to give you some more information of ways to think about God in a more healthy way that's going to actually lead to liberation of mind and enlightenment. Because if your mind is burdened, with this fear or this guilt or this shame or this domineering God that's controlling us or this punishment and rewards, if you have this heaviness in the mind about this being of God, you're not going to be able to experience liberation or enlightenment. The very first time I ever did one of these talks about God over two years ago now, I had a student that told me just seeing the word God on a piece of paper arose fear and anger in their mind. And this is based on what they've experienced in the past, particularly certain groups of people who talk about God will sometimes say that God has negative views and opinions about certain relationships. If you are in a same gender relationship, some people profess and they teach that God is unloving of someone who is in a same gender relationship. This is completely untrue. It's completely false. Maybe those people themselves feel that way and they're trying to communicate what they feel and they're casting their feelings onto this God and saying that that's how God feels. But from my experience, God does not feel that way at all about someone who has a same gender relationship. Or if there's been other things like this, that maybe you've been taught that if you get a divorce, that this is a bad thing and God will judge you uh, when you die and you're going to go to a bad place if you get a divorce. This isn't true because this universal truth of impermanence, God understands these teachings and these natural laws of existence. So a divorce is essentially impermanence. I'm not saying that someone should necessarily go out and get a divorce. Everybody needs to make their own choices. But there's been constant things that have been taught to us throughout our life about various decisions that we might be interested to make. And based on those people who are teaching and what their personal views are, they might share that these are what God's personal views are. But there's no evidence of that whatsoever. From my experience, God has no attachment to us doing one thing or another. It's all our free will choices. 
and he's not trying to coerce us or guilt us or shame us or fear us into doing any one particular thing or another. So if you've experienced any of this in the past, you're going to need to let that go and realize that perhaps people were sharing that with you at different times in your life, but there's no evidence that that is true in regards to this being of God. And if you decide to cultivate a relationship with God, you can come to understand that to be true. If you choose to not have a relationship with God, then you'll come to understand that to be true as well. Because if you don't have a relationship with God and you still get to enlightenment, then you can see that God isn't controlling you. You can see that God isn't domineering, that God isn't requiring you to worship him. Because if you can get to enlightenment, to this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, with the relationship with God or without one, then you can see that, yeah, you have complete free will, that God isn't controlling you whatsoever. So thank you all for choosing to learn this content. And while there might have been some things that I said that could maybe cause some painful feelings or some difficulties in your mind as you hear these things, just remember that this is based on your own conditioning, your own craving, desire, attachments. If any painful feelings came into the mind based on what I've shared, this is an indication that you've got some craving, desire, attachments in relationship to this being called God. And it's important for you to face those fears and face those challenges, face those difficulties so that you can eliminate them and ultimately get to a point where you have no anger, hatred, or ill will towards this being. Next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 19, which is titled Difficult Human Existence, Sickness, Aging, and Death. Here, we're going to talk about the life story of Gautama Buddha. I'm going to share with you guys a bit about his life story and helping you to understand what he experienced during his last life, his 80 years of life. We can talk about his previous lives as well if you'd like, but I think it's his last life that is really important for us to understand. So I'll share some teachings to help you understand what his life was like and why he even went on this journey to enlightenment to begin with. And we're going to talk about these three aspects of the human condition of sickness, aging, and death. Because these are three things that are the most challenging for us humans to experience and to understand how to deal with. Oftentimes our mind is highly discontent when we are sick, aging, and death, or people close to us are sick or aging or experience death. These are oftentimes that are very difficult for the human mind. So I'm going to help you understand some teachings of how to overcome any discontentedness as it relates to sickness, aging, and death. This Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together in our class. So you're welcome to join for that live. Or if you would like to listen to the replay on Facebook, YouTube, or our podcast, you're welcome to do that. And you'll be able to actually meditate along with us doing loving kindness meditation. So I'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Take care. We'll see you next time. Sabadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. 
A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.